Well, hello there. Um, it's very echoey where I am, because I'm in a little kind of greenhouse. So I hope you can hear me clearly. And uh, I'm in a place called Crawfordsburn. I'm sorry, I haven't done one of these for ages. I've been traveling loads. I've been in, where have I been? Ohio, had a great time in Ohio. I've been in England and I've been in Ireland. And uh, this is a beautiful place, if I can just show you. This is um, where C.S. Lewis was inspired, uh, the kind of landscape that inspired Narnia. He actually, just, um, just down the road, is a, a place called the Crawfords Burn Inn, and that's where C.S. Lewis spent some of his time. He uh, went on his honeymoon there. He would go for walks around the, the forest area. And uh, I actually, in my wake festival, we had a day down here where we looked at C.S. Lewis, did a bit of a critical engagement with his work. Um, and so, yeah, it's a beautiful part of uh, Northern Ireland. So I thought I would repent of my lack of Facebook Lives and um, come in and say hi. Feel free to uh, comment, ask questions, do the usual. You know that you know the drill by now, I'm sure. Uh, I'm Let's see if this works. Brilliant. I've already got somebody saying hello. Hey, Andrew. Can, can you hear me okay? Is it very echoey? Is it clear enough? Um, Anybody can be free to answer me. Well, Andrew just gave me a heart, so I guess that's a yes, I think. Okay, so what am I doing in, in Belfast? Well, uh, obviously I'm from here. Um, I'm doing some work in the Netherlands and in the UK, and then I'm taking lots of time out to hang around with my family and my friends. Um, I love being home. I love LA, and actually usually if you go into Facebook Live, you will know that I love LA. I'm usually in my dressing gown doing this in the morning, but uh, we're in the afternoon here, so no, no dressing gown for you today. Um, I've just been spending two wonderful weeks um, just back home. Um, beautiful weather, beautiful landscape. It's been fantastic. I've been planning my wake festival. That's one of the reasons why I'm back. Uh, most of you will know that I run this little festival once a year with 50 people from all over the world, mostly from the US and Canada, but from all over. And uh, we spend five days together in Belfast and we combine talks, music, art, whiskey tasting, pub crawls, um, and just enjoying, enjoying each other's company, good coffee. Um, and we explore radical theology, paro-theology, and it's called wake, because a wake is an Irish uh, ritual, which is kind of like a party that you have after the death of someone. You kind of like, you drink, you say cheers to the person who's gone, you mourn, but it's also a place of joy. It's a mourning and joy, and it's a letting go of something, uh, bringing something of the dead person with you, but also moving into something else. And so wake is really where people let something die in their lives. Often it's an old form of religion, uh, maybe an old form of belief. And wake is kind of a ritual that is about, you know, letting that go and then entering into something new. So I've been back looking at kind of the contributors, the artists, the musicians that we're going to have. Uh, if you're interested, go on to my website, you'll find out more there. 
Um, I've also been working on um, my trip to Australia and New Zealand, which is coming up next in about two weeks. Uh, can't wait to get out there. I'm out in Australia every year. Um, so I'll be in Sydney, I'll be in Melbourne. Um, where else will I be? Um, I think that might be the only two places I'm doing in, uh, in Australia this time. And then I'll be in Auckland in New Zealand uh, before I get back to LA. So, hey, I know you didn't ask, but I'm just filling you in with what I've been up to. Uh, so what do I want to talk about today? Well, I'm just back from an event I did with uh, Rob Bell in Lincoln, which is so much fun. I love working with Rob. Um, the people here I was with were fantastic. I don't know if any of you here listening to this were at the event, but it was just wonderful. And um, so I might take, take up one of the themes that I was exploring there. And then, as I say, you can just right away and um, ask a couple of questions if you want. Um, okay, so in previous Facebook lives, I have talked about how we are riven with nothingness, that we are like Swiss cheese. Swiss cheese has holes within it. And I talked about that in relation to the way in which to be human is to live between who you are and who you would like to be. And it is also to live between what you have and what you would like to have. Right? So if you, if you go back to some of my old Facebook uh, live videos, you'll, you'll hear that. I'm using a thinker called Adam Phillips, who wrote a beautiful book called Missing Out. And um, basically from when we're young, we experience this difference between you know, hunger and you know, fear and pain whenever we're not with our primary caregiver. And then that experience, that oceanic experience of feeling satisfied and feeling warm, right? And because we kind of oscillate between those two things, uh, we set up this difference, what I have and what I don't. And as we grow, we continue to live in that space between these two. So if I have a friendship with you, I am not just relating to who you are, I'm also relating to who you would like to be. Uh, you will have dreams of a life that you would like to have lived or a life that you would like to live. And that is as much a part of you as the life that you do live. Uh, your dreams, whether it's to be single or to be married or to be rich or to travel the world or whatever it is, your utopic idea of who you would like to be influences how you live. And it's as much part of you as everything else. And in the same way, there is who you are and there is who you would like to be. Um, this also starts off when we're very young. I think I went into the theory of it, I'm not sure. But the basic idea is uh, when I'm young, I have anxieties and fears, just like when I get old. But, but I, I, I realise that in my body, there's a lot of stuff going on. And very early on, I create I create, through the help of my parents, uh, an image of myself that is strong, um, that has things together, that isn't anxious. This is called a mirror phase. So I might be frightened and fearful, but um, somebody tells me you're brave and you're strong and you're good. And I create this kind of image of myself and it helps allay my anxieties. And as I grow, I continue to have who I am and, and who I would like to be. Uh, when we look in the mirror, Often if we're looking good, we've dressed up, we're going to go out on a Saturday night and we feel anxious inside, 
we look at ourselves in the mirror and we see someone who looks good, who looks in control, who looks sorted. We see a mirror image of ourselves and we go, okay, that's me. Inside, I'm feeling maybe socially anxious, but on the outside, I look like I've got this together. And again, we live in the space of the in-between. I actually noticed uh, recently, I was talking to Rob Bell about this, but um, I sometimes go round to his house for dinner. He never invites me, I just go round, you know, knock on the door until he has to let me in. And um, I noticed that when I'm talking to him normally, I talk about Rob, but when I'm talking about his work, I, I use the phrase Rob Bell, and his wife pointed this out to me, Kristen, she said, well, you know, why are you saying Rob? Well, Rob Bell is like his kind of like idealized self, and Rob is kind of who just sits and cooks dinner in his house, and he is both, and he is neither. He is between those two. Just like many of you think of me as uh, you know, Dr. Rollins, I'm sure. <laughs> um, other people know me as a disheveled Irish guy. Now I know um, that's hard for you to believe. <laughs> but, um, but you know, but I might live between an idealized image of myself and this who I really am. And, and they're both kind of part of who I am, right? So the difference, the space between who, what I want and who I am, what I have, that space between what I have and what I want is experienced in the anxiety of purposelessness. The sense of if only I had a certain thing or lived a certain way then I would have meaning, purpose, fulfillment in my life. And the, the, the difference between who I am and who I would like to be uh, is experienced in the, uh, in the anxiety of doubt, or sorry, guilt, guilt. Uh, guilt is the sense in which you're not living up to something. There is something you feel that you could live up to, a, a better version of yourself. So meaninglessness and guilt are the names that we give to these spaces of the in-between. And as we've already explored in, in other uh, videos, we try to avoid living in this space. We conspire with people who say, okay, you can have what will make you whole and complete and what will make you the person that you would like to be. Or we conspire with those people who say, put all of those dreams behind you and just accept reality for what it is. But neither of these work completely. We ultimately have to wrestle with, tarry with this sense of meaninglessness and guilt. Even if they're not strong in our lives, it, to some extent, they, they are, they're generally there. Um, now, in my last three books, I have used the term sacred object to describe the fantasy object we create that we think will help us escape guilt and meaninglessness, purposelessness, right? The sacred object is the object that I think that if I had that, then I would be happy, content, I could be who I want to be, uh, you know, and not who I am. So the, this, this sacred object is this object that we think will just get, get us out of this space of the in-between. Um, now there's three things about the sacred object, interestingly. The sacred object for us exists, is sublime, and is meaningful, right? So first one, it exists. To exist is to stand out, something you can touch, taste or see. The sacred object that promises us fulfillment is something that exists until we get it and then we realize it doesn't. 
whatever the sacred object is, we realize it doesn't exist. But we think it exists until we get it, and it doesn't. Secondly, it is sublime and beautiful and wonderful. That's what it looks like to us, until we get it, and then we realize it isn't. And then finally, it is meaningful. We think, oh, this will provide meaning in my life if I get it. But once you get the new BMW, the new mansion, the new relationship, the new you know, X, Y, or Z, you realize it doesn't provide that lasting meaning in your life. That's the sacred object. The alternative um, is uh, what I call the, the sacred as the depth dimension in objects. Right? And um, uh, that can be described very differently. The, the sacred as a depth dimension in objects. Uh, if you think about it like love. Love is different from the idol because love doesn't exist. To exist means to stand out. Something you can touch, taste, see or feel. But you can't taste or touch or see or feel love. Love does not exist. But love calls everything into existence. When you love someone, you see them not as a mere object, a mere thing, but you see them as a subject. You see hundreds of people every day, but only as things. But if you see someone you love in the street, they stand out from the background as a subject. They exist for you in a way that other people don't. A friend of mine actually was on a, a train to New York and she forgot her ticket and she didn't have any money. And when the conductor asked her for the ticket, big, like a big guy, she said, I'm really sorry, I don't have a ticket, don't have any money. She obviously looked like distressed and so he said, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And they eventually got talking, you know, when he came back. They sat down, they, they showed pictures of each other's kids, talked about their family life. And at the end she said, listen, thanks for letting me off with the ticket thing. And he said, it's okay, he says, it's just lovely to be seen. It's just lovely to be seen. Now, of course, the conductor is seen by thousands of people every day, but he felt that he was seen as a subject in that communication with her. Secondly, love is not sublime. You don't look at love and go, that is beautiful. Love is what says that which is in front of you is sublime. That child, that man, that woman, that cause, that's sublime. And finally, love is not meaningful. Love is what brings meaning into your world. If you believe the world's meaningful in an intellectual way, that you know there's ultimate meaning behind everything, but you do not love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningless. And vice versa, if you think the universe is meaningless, but you love, you cannot help but experience it as profoundly meaningful. To love is to experience meaning in, in the world. Now, of course, the interesting thing about this is the moment that you forget about love and engage in love is the moment when it seems like the most grounded, eminently existing thing in the whole universe. It's like that which grounds all existence. So the sacred object exists until you get it and you realize it doesn't. Love doesn't exist until you let it go and engage in love. And then in that, you feel it is that which grounds all of existence. It is the most eminently existing of all things. So there's this really interesting difference. Um, and uh, one way of thinking about it, and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll stop because I know I'm waffling. I don't think this is an overly good Facebook 
uh, live video. I don't think I'm going to win any awards for this, sadly. Um, but I appreciate you sticking in there. Um, there's a theological term called realized eschatology, which is, a, there's a philosophical equivalent, but I think theology, it's one of the few times that I think theology has a better name for it than philosophy, right? Um, eschatology is all about the future. It's about what's going to come, what's happening, right? So think about it in terms of me saying you live in the gap so in a, as a society, as an individual, between you know, who you are and who you'd like to be, between what you have and what you would like to have, right? Um, the eschatological realm is the realm of, you know, the future where, where there is something wonderful, where you have what you want, where you are who you want to be, you know, the real, the, the future kingdom, right? Um, but the, fa the term realized eschatology means that the future is already here. The eschatology is here, it's realized, right? So what does that mean? It sounds bizarre, like the future is here, but yet its future is not present. Um, you think about it like love. When you love somebody, they are there in front of you. You love someone and they're right beside you. You're lying in bed with them, right? But there's still something about them that is to come. Something that you don't know. Some, some part of them that is still to arrive, that is still to be understood and known. Because they are a universe. They're like the TARDIS and Doctor Who. This tiny box that it opens up into an infinite world. The people we love are these fragile frames that open up into interior worlds that are infinite. They are a mystery to us and they are a mystery unto themselves. They are both there in the present and yet there is something still to arrive, something still unknown about them. Right? It's the same with freedom or democracy or any of these ideas. There is a certain sense in which democracy is here. But all democracies, as the philosopher Derrida would say, are still to come. Democracy is still to arrive. We have it, and yet what we have is not really it. It's a promise of something to come, both now and not yet, both here and not yet here. So theologically speaking, I would say that we as human beings kind of live in a type of realized eschatology at our best. Instead of trying to go, the future, I want to make a utopia and that will be great, right? When then you get your utopia, it's not that great. Or giving up your dreams and going, okay, yeah, I'll just do life as it is and forget about any, any improvement of my life and who I am or any of that. The idea of realized eschatology is that, that you are inspired by some future that is felt in the present. You embrace the present, you love the present. Yet there is something in it that is calling you to something better and something more. But it never ends. You never get it. It's not some kind of like, oh, after 10 years or 20 years, then I'll have it. It's this eternal eschatology that is realized in the present. We are always called for it. And that's why in a previous Facebook Live, I talked about Camus' rebel. Like, James Dean is the ultimate rebel. James Dean was rebelling against what exists. But he wasn't trying to create a new world that would be perfect. It was just to be human is to rebel, to be human is to resist, to give yourself to justice, to give yourself to love, because that is calling you forward to better worlds. But that call is never fully realized. It's, it is realized and yet it is also still to come. You know? So in this Facebook Live, all I wanted to draw out is how we live in that space 
We try to avoid that space by running to, you know, getting what we want, if only we realise it in our minds, if we can get rid of all of the obstacles and make enough money, then we'll have it. Or we resign ourselves to death and to despair. But like those are the two options, but no, we live in the middle. And in the middle can be described as a realised eschatology, where you embrace what is present and yet what is still to come. And in that space, uh, I think we find interesting freedom. And this is a move from the sacred as an object that will satisfy us, to the sacred as a depth dimension in objects. The sacred as a depth dimension we encounter when we love. When we love our world, it's both something that's present, we love what is there, and yet that love also asks us to think about the future and how to fix things. Like if you love your child, you love them in the present, but that love also says, I want to plan for their future. You know. Okay, let's see, any thoughts or hellos from people? Um, oh, people are saying that the sound was okay. Uh, a bit of an echo. Um, let's see, someone, someone from Copenhagen, we've got someone from Detroit, we've got someone from Quebec. Uh, we've got people from all over. Um, let's see. Where's the gin? asks Billy. Um, I do actually have some gins next door. I went and bought some really nice Irish gins. My favourite was uh, gunpowder Irish gin. Very, very good. Um, we do some good gins now in Ireland. Um, oh, there's Naders. Naders who I'm working with uh, to try and create a book of fairy tales. Um, he asks, so how does the past play into this in that we are because of, in that we are uh, because of who we are, well we are because of who we were. Uh, aren't we the response to the experiences we've had? We can only deal with where we are because of what we've gone through. I mean, I totally agree with that. Well, one of the issues I have with the New Age saying that the present is all you have, the, fu the future is future and the past is past, the present is what we have, the eternal now, live into the now, is simply that psychoanalysis teaches us that the past isn't history. Our past is always present. And if we don't know our past, we're condemned to repeat it. Condemned to repeat the same patterns, the same types of relationships, the same types of problems. Just like a society that doesn't know its history is condemned to repeat it. So an individual that doesn't know their history is condemned to repeat it. Our past is present and actually takes a lot of work to kind of move beyond that so that new possibilities arise, so that we can open up to the future. So what I'm saying along with Naders, I think, is, um, is that the, we live in the past, the present and the future. All of these actually play a big part. And the only one I was talking about in this Facebook Live is the future. How um, we have this you know, realized eschatology that somehow our vision of the future impacts how we live now. Our ideas of the future impact us. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll do a Facebook Live on how the past also informs us. And the crazy thing is you can change the past. We're like all like time travellers. That's one of the interesting things about the myth of time travel in, in movies, is that there's a certain sense in which you can reinterpret your past in such a way that your past uh, is different. And this is very exciting because if you're really depressed, if you've lost someone you love and you can never imagine getting over it, um, and you're single 
and you're alone for 10 years and it's devastating. You can potentially come to a place, you might meet someone, you might find a cause, I don't know what it is, but something happens, let's, let's imagine you meet somebody. Um, and it, the past becomes like this waiting for them. Suddenly the past is reinterpreted as, if that hadn't happened, I would never have met you. And it becomes like an Old Testament prophecy to the event that's happening now. So the future changes the past, not kind of literally in what happened, but it changes the past in terms of how it impacts you. So we are constantly moving between past, present and future in our lives. So, you know, don't get too depressed if you think your past is devastating and destructive and awful because it can be changed just as it can go the other way. You love someone and you fall out of love with them and then you look back and you don't understand how you could ever have loved them. And actually, you even don't see it. You look back and think, I don't know if I ever did love them. But it's only because of what happened in the future that changes how you see the past. So everything, everything is up for grabs. Um, oh, there's Spencer Burke. Hello, Spencer. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, uh, Jessica says, gunpowder for the pyrotheologian. Nice, I didn't think of that, but yeah, maybe that's why it appealed to me. <laughs> um, somebody, I can't pronounce your name, sorry. R-H-E-S-A, which would be Risa. Risa? Um, tell me if I got that wrong. I call it the invasion of the of future in the present. It's like faith as an evidence of things unseen in the book of Hebrews. An invasion of the future in the present. I really like that. An invasion of the future in the present. Um, yeah, I like that phrase. So you should use that. Write a book called that. That'd be very cool. Okay, how long have I been talking for? Probably a good half an hour. Um, I uh, hope you're all keeping well. I, I, I love seeing friends, people I know, people I've met uh, in my travels popping on here and saying hi. It's, I mean, I really feel like I'm in, kind of in the room with you. It's very weird, uh, this, this live experience. I mean, I'm basically using my mobile phone. This is the Rollins Industrial Complex, is my iPhone and a Facebook app. Uh, this is not exactly a multi-million dollar enterprise. Uh, and I love it. It's incredible. I hope some of you will be at some of the events that I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing lots of free events as well. Um, just go on to my website. And um, I hope I can coax at least a few of you to come to my next uh, Wake Festival. This will be the fifth year. Uh, we've been sold out the last few years, so I kind of imagine we'll be the same this year. So if ever you wanted to go to Ireland, um, and spend a few days just hanging out, um, you know, check that out. Anyway, thank you so much. And um, if you've got any ideas of what you'd like me to speak about in the future, please feel free to, uh, to drop me a line. I'm just going to finish by showing you one more time the beauty that is uh, Crawfordsburn and the land of C.S. Lewis. Imagine why he was inspired by this. It's absolutely stunning. Okay, goodbye.